Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe. We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe we have been having in-depth conversations about movies since 2011. You are telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. Season 5 had some great adaptations, like our Meryl Streep Oscar-nominated performances series. We covered adaptations like Kramer vs. Kramer, Sophie's Choice, and The French Lieutenant's Woman. It's a real Sophie's Choice between those books. <laughs> you see what, I, <laughs> see what I did there? Uh, yeah. Uh, and I don't think it's quite at the level of a real Sophie's Choice. We also did Snowpiercer for our Bong Joon-ho series, adapted from the French graphic novel Le Transpersonnage. Man, I love that movie. We had our two-part 1939 series that included adaptations like Gone with the Wind, Ninochka, The Women, and The Hound of the Baskervilles. A number of those 1939 movies, like Goodbye, Mr. Chips, also tied into our recent 1940 Academy Award Best Picture nominee series. Our naughty children horror series had creepy adaptations like The Bad Seed, Village of the Damned, The Innocents, and Children of the Corn. For our Hayao Miyazaki series, we talked about his take on Lupin III with the Castle of Cagliostro, plus his own The Wind Rises. Some great listener choice picks, too. Viridiana and The Great Escape. And for our David Mamet Wright's series, The Verdict, The Untouchables, and Glengarry Glen Ross. Plus, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang from our Shane Black series adapted from Brett Halliday's novel, Bodies Are Where You Find Them. Dive into the sources for all of these at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book you buy helps support the show. Check out thenextreel.com slash originals today and find your next read. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends... Our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. 
It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. We have some business to discuss. We do. We have business. Some shoe business. Can I Can some... I say something? I, have you ever play, downloaded, uh, so you know, how do you listen to this podcast? I know you you listen to our own podcast, right? You do a QC, the old quality check. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I uh, listen to it on Downcast. You know what? I used to listen to it on Downcast. I've switched to Overcast. Mm. And you know what I'm going to say? I think we sound be- better in Overcast. Oh, really? Yes. Yes. That's funny. Marco Arment is the developer of Overcast, and he de- he actually put a lot of work trying to re-engineer an audio engine from scratch for this app, for this podcast app, and it works really, really well. And you know what I like the most about it? And this is fascinating. There is a feature in it that you can turn on that where it, it's called smart speed. And essentially what it does is it goes through and it it gets rid of all of the gaps when you're not talking. And it just squishes them all together. But it doesn't increase the overall speed of the rest of the show. So you don't end up sounding like chipmunks when you're... Right? Right. You, you sound at normal speed, but there are no gaps. So it just sounds like we are incredibly smart and never have to take a minute to think. We are incredibly smart. We never <laughs> take a minute to think. What are you talking about? <laughs> well, I cut most of those out. But but this is, it does it automatically. And so I have switched over. But anyway, the whole reason I'm saying this, you know how sometimes we say, please give us a review on iTunes. That's really nice. I, yes. People do that. It's really nice to do that. In Overcast, if you uh, you can recommend episodes by just pressing a button. You just go to the button and it says recommend. You want to recommend this episode? Yes. And then in his catalog, when you go to search for other shows, uh, your recommended shows will show up. Isn't that smart? Yeah. That's nice. So if you're an Overcast listener and 7% of our listeners are Overcast listeners. Hey, hey. Please recommend the show in Overcast because it's great if you do that. Um, yeah, I can't do that in Downcast. No, there is no such thing. So thank you, Andy, for nothing. <laughs> for nothing. <laughs> that's all That's all I had in terms of my business. We had a death. We have two deaths. Two? I'm only caught up on one, and it was so sad. I don't need another one. Happy Days actor Al Molinaro died. Oh, it was two. Oh, Big Al. That one is sad. He was the owner. Big Al Del Vecchio. Yeah. Wasn't it Del Vecchio? Was it Del Vecchio? This, I'm going to go right. to the mat on this one. I think this may be the only name I can ever pronounce correctly on this show <laughs> besides my own. I think you're right. Yeah. Now I feel, now I feel, Del now Vich- I feel like a not fan. <laughs> Del Vecchio. But I loved you, Al. <laughs> oh, yes. That was a sad one. And the other? The other was uh, Melissa Matheson. Oh. Or young, too young. Wasn't yeah, she like 65? 65. Yeah, oh. 65 years old. She wrote uh, The Black Stallion, The Indian in the Cupboard, Kundun, um, part of Twilight Zone, the movie, and of course the one that uh, everybody remembers her for is E.T. And and uh, she used to be, wasn't she uh, married to, to Harrison Ford for a while? Yeah, all the way mm-hmm. until 2004. Yeah. 
That is a sad loss. Our thoughts are with the families of the uh, Molinaros and the Madisons. Sad. Indeed, indeed. Uh, we do have some follow-up uh, from... You know what we got? We got two follow-ups. We got, we got the uh, the blot spot. Yes, he said, glad you guys saw the awful in this film. <laughs> Talking about Children of the Corn last week. <laughs> wow, every aspect was hard to watch. This is a movie that terrified my wife when she was young, and she's much tougher than me about horror, so I dreaded watching it. Now I have to wonder, am I desensitized that much, or is this movie just aged terribly? Because I wasn't even slightly afraid or even disturbed. I actually chuckled at the terrible script, acting, and effects, and don't even get me started on that ridiculous voiceover and the inclusion of the good kids. Children of the Corn is a straight-up bad movie, and I'm so glad this series is over. Wink. Your rank after all the re-ranking, 205 out of 208. My rank, 204 out of 208. We can't believe that you actually (laughs) liked it more than we did, Ben. This is on you, Ben. (laughs) Oh, that's a riot. I think so, too. Uh, it, we got some follow-up from a friend of the show, Joel Micah Harris. We haven't heard from him for a while. He said, man, this movie scared the crap out of me as a kid. I rewatched it as an adult a few years ago, and it was horrible. Having said that, I could totally <laughs> see this being good fodder for a remake. Try the 2009 version. It's not true, Joel. Uh, give it to Frank Darabont, and we might have a great movie. Maybe, maybe if uh, Frank Darabont took it on. Oh, and I love the re-rank, guys. Sad but true fact, I could listen to an entire podcast of you ranking movies on Flickchart <laughs> and discussing why each movie is more or least deserving. Good stuff, Pete and Andy. Oh, thanks, Pretty Joel. Uh, we miss <laughs> you, man. Thank you so much for saying that, for writing in. And uh, a, a note of follow-up to Philip Hurd, friend of the show on Facebook. Philip commented on my woes about our podcast archives. Podcast archives are fixed. And so thank you, Philip, for uh, saying that we spoil you by that deep archive. We sure appreciate you appreciating that. Uh, and it's all fixed. It took the better part of the uh, long weekend, but, uh, but I got it done. So every episode should play both on the website and you should be able to download it in various podcast directories. If you have any problems, please let me know. And then um, a new listener, Mindy Laugh. Uh, commented over on Twitter. She uh, said she finally is figuring out how to fix her flick chart to match ours, which is fantastic. She's not quite at the 208 yet, but she's working on it. It's good to have goals, which is fantastic to hear, Mindy, and glad you are tuning into the show. Absolutely. Welcome, Mindy. And uh, we've had some great discussion with our uh, Listener's Choice winner, Diego Luis Contreras. And we're coming to terms with what uh, his Listener's Choice film will be, which we should be able to announce shortly. Definitely. Uh, I think that's it. Should we uh, tell the people where we're from? Where are we from? This is The Next Reel, everybody, on Rashpixel.fm. I'm Pete Wright, and that over there is Andy Nelson. Howdy, howdy, howdy. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, the first in our brief series of the films of Hayao Miyazaki, with his directorial debut film, 1979's The Castle of Cagliostro. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show in iTunes, or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And... If you've ever secretly thought about starting an underground counterfeiting operation calling your bills goat bucks, you should head over to Instagram.com slash the next reel and play the next reel's Instagram hashtag pony prize hashtag guess the movie challenge. And since our dear impresario of Instagram, Stephen Smart, went off looking for the castle of Cagliostro but ended up in Barcelona, I am here to report. This week uh, I was doing Moulin Rouge, the fantastic Baz Luhrmann film, film from 2001. And uh, it only took two images 
for Enbergloff to be able to figure out that it was in fact Moulin Rouge. The first image really threw everybody. Nobody could quite figure out exactly what that was. It's a, it's a very close shot of the blank piece of paper in the typewriter. But after that... Uh, <laughs> That's just, that's just mean. <laughs> it was great. It was super obscure. Which, yeah. uh, you know, in that movie, it's very visually uh, designed. So it was a little tricky finding some some tricky images. But And the second image I thought would, uh, you know, trick people still, but not Enbergloff, who was able to figure it out. So congratulations. You're entered to win the 2015 Pony Prize. Outstanding, Andy. It's time. Let's do trailers. <laughs> I think you should go first because I actually have been looking forward to your movie for a really long time and I just want to get it out there. Oh, have you? Do you you'll never guess. Go ahead and guess. Where did I hear about this movie? Where did you hear about this movie? You're, I have no idea. You're not I feel try. like I'd heard of this, but, uh, I, you know, I don't know. I think I knew that it was coming out, but it uh, really surprised me. I, Where did you hear about it? Well, I, the fabulous podcast, Doug Loves Movies, uh, uh, he actually was doing a show. I think it was Telluride. Uh, when they they this this film uh, was uh, being premiered or not premiered it was at least being you know exhibited in, in at the Telluride Film Festival and he yeah, had seen it, it did premiere it did premiere just it did this past premiere there? September yeah that's right and so uh, he and the entire cast and all of these people if you know Doug Benson all of the people on the show were completely stoned and they're all ribald comedians and they all had incredibly wonderful things to say about this film you are about to talk about wonderful things that is so nice to hear um, yes i am of course talking about charlie kaufman's new movie anomalisa which is a, a great little title and it looks really interesting mostly because it's actually stop motion animation which is very exciting um it seems almost really fitting with charlie kaufman and kind of the way that he um has been going in his career a cynic Synecdoche, New York, um, is a, I really did not like that film. I had a really hard time getting into the characters, but I did find it really fascinating, and I enjoyed the the way that he was moving as far as telling a story that was um, that was so uh, in your head. At least that's how I found it. And this looks like it's taking it even more the next step into this kind of analysis of kind of what it's like to be uh just a person in this kind of normal world done with stop motion animation which seems like a really interesting interesting way to kind of explore humanity and i got really excited watching this trailer and i don't know if this is going to be another synecdoche new york for me or not but I still really want to see it. And that excites me. Um, it's actually co uh, co-directed by Charlie Kaufman and Duke Johnson. And I don't know if that's just because Duke Johnson um, may be somebody who's more in the uh, stop motion animation world. I'm assuming because that does seem to kind of be his forte. But um, yeah, uh, this looks really exciting. Um, it's got uh, David Thewlis in it, who's not in enough stuff. Tom Noonan, who is one of the more, I, I don't know, there's something about him that I always am creeped out by. I don't know why. And uh, Jennifer Jason Lee. So, um, yeah. And that's it. Tom Noonan is credited as everyone else in the film. we got <laughs> David, David Thewlis as Michael Stone, Jennifer Jason Lee as Lisa, and Tom Noonan as everyone else. 
I think it's fantastic. I think the conceit is really clever. I think it's one of those where uh, probably if they didn't do it stop motion, there wouldn't be quite enough of it that's uh, that's unique and beautiful. But um, I, I think that that animation is going to lend that next dimension that will really take the the story to someplace special. That's my bet. I think it's going to be a fantastic one, and I think well, it will be yeah. underappreciated. I I think so too. I, I definitely think so. Um, and like I said, it could be another Synecdoche, New York. But that's okay, because even though I don't like that one, I had a hard time with it, I still find it to be an incredibly artful film. Yes, absolutely. So maybe this will be too. Yeah. This opens a very limited release at the end of the year, December 30th, and then it's going to be opening wider. Don't know how wide, but wider in January. I, my film is Christmas Eve from writer-director Mitch Davis. I don't know anything of Mitch Davis. Uh, he has done some other things that I have not seen. Uh, co-written with uh, Tyler McKellar. Also, I know nothing of Tyler McKellar. Looks like a new voice on the scene. It is a film that uh, it, it's, it, it looks a little bit like a New York story. It's a vignette kind of a film I think, uh, where six different groups of New Yorkers get trapped inside elevators on Christmas Eve. Uh, I always have my radar up for a uh, Patrick Stewart film, and he is in this one, along with John Hader, James Rode, who I, I like very much. I think he's a charming person. I've watched him for years on Psych. Uh, and, and Cheryl Hines, Gary Cole, very funny. Uh, Max Casella. I mean, it's got a fantastic um, uh, cast. A, a lot of people I haven't heard of, but those that I have, I, I'm very fond of. Uh, I think it's a little bit of, of pre-holiday cheer. It, it's funny to me that it's opening December 4th. It almost feels like it should be opening a little bit closer to Christmas, but, um, uh, you know, what are you going to do with schedules? I don't know. What do you think? Am I, am I misguided? I was really, I had a hard time figuring out the tone of the film based on the trailer. It started feeling like a much more of a comedy and then it kind of, and it's billed as a comedy, but then it kind of, started feeling like almost it was going to be like the anti-love actually which yes. kind of got me a little excited i'm like yes. oh this will be great and then it started feeling really sappy and sweet and i'm like wow what is it and i felt like there were some weird tone shifts just throughout this trailer so i couldn't really pinpoint what the film was going for um i i think it could work i just really couldn't quite figure it out and i really couldn't figure out what the whole point of the van crashing into the lake was it seemed like somehow that sets off this thing it like is that the angel of christmas who crashes and right with the with the funky like like incredibly hyper accentuated lightning bolt across the axle <laughs> right exactly uh definitely something we both noticed so yeah uh, yeah so i don't know what to make of the film i think it could be interesting um i think it could be another example of the film i talked about last week <laughs> I want it to be good, but it may yeah, not. Be. But it may not be. Yeah. So I'm I'm with you. I think um, I, you know every year, every holiday season, we break out the um, the audio version of Patrick Stewart's uh, Christmas story, right? The Christmas Carol. Oh yes. He does. Yeah. Oh yes. Uh-huh. Which is just fantastic. And so uh, you know that guy has come to mean Christmas more to us around here than Jean Luc Picard. You know, which is a funny transformation because very few Star Trek canon actors have have managed to transcend that for me. Um, and and yet he certainly has. And um, and so I get excited when I see him in other other stories, particularly a, a Christmas story. I'm I'm going to give this a shot. Comes out December 4th, 2015. Excellent. Andy, don't you dare die before I get to arrest you. Clarice, Lupin, you are the one who is 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 the one who is
かるやげっちまってなおいこんなちっぽけな国に一体何があるんだあるさあの城にね The castle of Cagliostro Rupan Sensei Cagliostro no Shiro What do you think about that? Wow, that's pretty impressive 1979, this, was, this is、uh, Hayao Miyazaki's、uh, directorial debut、uh, and this was, Theatrical film directorial As a film, right, right, right that's Good catch、uh, he, This was before、uh, Studio Ghibli Correct Right, and so that's an important thing because、uh, This film,、um, it, it's, it's not a Studio Ghibli film. I no, say that、uh... in every possible meaning of, <laughs>、yeah. of the phrase. Intention.、Yeah, Toei Animation and TMS Entertainment who、yes. uh, teamed up to make this. Yes, it is based on a, a、uh, comic, a manga comic. Correct. By Monkey Punch. Monkey Punch. I just had to say that because. That's one of the best names ever. I know. I can't wait to talk more about Monkey Punch,、uh, who, who had some interesting things to say about this adaptation of the comic. It's,、uh, it's a fun action film, and it's a fun action film that has very, very long arms.、Uh, it has been said to inspire um, um, Steven Spielberg and with the、uh, main character of Indiana Jones. It's been said to inspire a lot of John Lasseter. He's a big fan. Of this particular film. This, this film has tentacles in,、uh, in a lot of,、uh, of films and filmmakers that we watch today. How did it hit you? You know, I've seen this film three times now, and、uh, I, I, it was an interesting one because I, I think I like it less than most of Miyazaki's other films. Um, but I do find that it's actually growing on me. The more that I've watched it, the more I find myself enjoying it. There's something about the,、uh, just the, kind of the simplicity of the, of the story and everything, and just kind of these characters. I think they're, they're such interesting characters、um, that they have, I, I have kind of grown a little attached to them now. And I actually find myself curious about looking at some of the other、uh, Lupin the Third films. Um, I, although, based on what I've read about kind of the,、um, the character Lupin the Third by Monkey Punch in the, in, the, in the manga comics, it sounds like a vastly different character, and I don't know if I'd actually like that Lupin. There's the one scene in this film where、uh, Miyazaki had、uh, there's the princess, uh, the princess、uh, Clarice, and he has Lupin the Third go to rescue her. Yes, and, yes, and to get her out、one. of there. And Monkey Punch said, Oh, well, I never would have had him rescue her. I probably would have had him rape her. <laughs> That's not、uh, what I would have anticipated, but it really sets the、no. tone for what you can expect from this adaptation. Yeah, and I guess if you're interested in looking at the manga comics, what you can expect in those. Yes, right, right, right. Very, very different.、Um, and, and it, but it also, I think, really gives us a good place to, to start talking about the, the, Miyazaki,、um, you know, the Miyazaki voice. The visual voice, you know. I mean, this, I, I think his choices in, in, you know, his work co writing this thing and directing it、uh, really sets a tone for some of the m- much, much more flamboyant、uh, pieces yet to come, don't you think? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I do feel、um, there are elements that you can see throughout the film that just kind of do hint at some of those Miyazaki uh, elements that, uh, that he does continue throughout his career. And、um, it's nice to see even, even something that is in a different world.、Um, I mean, 
you know, he had familiarity with Lupin already. He had directed a couple of the TV episodes and everything. But this, um, it, while it probably still feels more in the Lupin the Third world of storytelling, it still does have some of those Miyazaki elements. It does. I was thinking about that in terms of the, um, you know, just the the overall design. And one of the things that I think is so interesting about the the just the the visual design of this thing. And if you and I want to separate the things that are wildly wildly Miyazaki um, the the that that we'll talk about in coming weeks. Um, in this case, there's such a rich European influence in the landscape and the architecture and the cars. This is so European. Right. I mean, it just screams European, except for we have a samurai character who is is obviously Japanese and we have a Japanese politician that in contrast to the rest of the characters in the film comes off as insensitively racist. Right. It's stereo. It, it is the stereotypical uh, Japanese uh, persona that you would see, um, you know, in in something that was lampooning Japanese animation, and I found that fascinating. The you mean the uh, the lieutenant? No, when they were in the they're in the like the the it's not a consulate, but there's like the the oh, it's like the Interpol, the Interpol the thing, Interpol yeah, 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 all the different meeting. countries right, right, right. are meeting, and and it yep. cuts to a Japanese one for the first time, and and a part of this is the danger of dubbing, right? Because um, I, you know, in this case, I watched the dub version. Did you watch? Did you find a subtitle? Yeah, I, I mean, typically, I will always watch subtitled versions. Um, but as we had decided, we were going to be watching these with our kids, and yeah. um, that just doesn't fly with a five and a nine year old. Yeah, they so. just don't read fast enough. Exactly. So we watched the two thousand dubbed version. Yes, uh, I got mine on uh, Hulu Plus, and. Um, you know, it it was it was fine. I think the the challenge with dubbing is is that you know I I just usually they add stuff right. They add stuff that's that context stuff that you don't normally get in the script because you don't need it. If you're a Japanese person watching in Japanese, you know the cultural cues, and they don't need to add any sort of exposition and sneak things into the dubbing and the the dubbed script. And and so in this case, I felt like I was being played a little bit. But in particular, when they cut to characters that were obviously Japanese and they needed to make a strange, they they made a strange tonal shift and actually had them speaking English in a Japanese accent that seemed like they were lampooning. Uh, the Japanese translation and I thought that was really bizarre a really bizarre maybe it was a bizarre you know uh, late 90s choice uh, but I I didn't I didn't truck with that uh, all that well yeah anyway the, the just the the overall sort of hints that that you get are uh, that this is a Miyazaki film and, and I should preface this by saying I'm not crazy about this film this is not one of my favorite films it I, I find it fun but I don't find it any more fun than you know if I were to turn on one of the modern sort sort of uh, like Batman retellings you know I you know animated Batman series you know I find them uh, you know it was fine uh, it didn't have a particularly great script it didn't have uh, the story was I think pretty predictable I didn't really you know jive with the movie all that well and I'm like you you know it's You've seen it. I felt like I've seen it. But what what I think you do see, and I, we talk about the, a little bit about the European influences, not just in the design of the people, but in the landscape and the architecture. You know, I mean, you see the the castle itself. It takes on such character of like this worn down, beautiful, worn down kind of antique or, or uh, uh, sort of facade of a of a historical site. I think it ends up being 
really beautiful. The architecture is is uh, fantastical, but only slightly so, uh, to the point where you're introduced to the physical structure of places in a way that feels very firm and and, and grounded until you start seeing things that are just not and and uh, little hints of of dreamlike structures that kind of sprout out of the main facilities. I think that's really interesting. You see, you have a car that you normally would just see driving around the European countryside until it drives up on the side of a cliff, uh, like the straight vertical side of a cliff. I think these things are, are you know, really um, fun, flamboyant little Miyazaki touches um, that, that give you a hint of the kinds of craziness that you're going to see in coming films. Yeah, and they, they balance what they can get away with in animation um, with kind of reality very nicely, I think. Those moments where the car drives up on the side of the cliff. You can almost buy it because of the way that it's animated. Or the fact that uh, uh, Lupin has this, you know, this <laughs> tiny wire thing attached to his belt that he can raise himself and lower himself with. The, and yeah, you, the you infinite grapple, gla- grappling hook, you know. Right, right. Or, or my favorite is the moment when he's... Uh, he leaps off the roof as he as he starts falling. <laughs> he just basically runs as fast as he can and leaps from that roof to another roof to the side of the the uh, the tower and then scales it. And it's just, it, you know, it's it's animation. It's kind of defying the laws of of gravity a little bit, but it, there's enough reality there that uh, that they get away with it. And I think that uh, Miyazaki was great at that in this film, especially the, you know, I think the sort of interpretation of ballet you know and and in that in that example of him running off the roof is a is a great one you know as he as he runs and the way his legs move and the way they stretch as he's he's in midair and the way he sort of pivots off of the structures that are between his you know the one roof and the actual tower the impossible tower that he's trying to get to um yeah the hang time is just so it it (laughs) is like such such a balletic beautiful hang time up there who would you say is the target audience for this thing oh i think it's families i think it's a i think it's definitely kind of a a fun family film my kids love it i mean they really do enjoy watching this film it's uh it's a very uh, kind of an easy film for them um and uh and and the nice thing about the the blu-ray is aside from having like every version of the film that there is as far as the different uh languages and dubs is there's also a kind of a clean family uh dub that uh tones down some of the some of it because it's a little uh a little there's a lot more swearing in this one than i think there's actually i should say there's actually swearing in this one as opposed to any yeah. of his other films i was going to say the same thing i mean i think that it seems funny that the the intention and not speaking japanese i i don't really know but it seems like the intention may may have changed in the dub that we watched from the original film i mean there was nothing that necessarily required swearing to to no, and get that's, the point I, you know and that's ex- i i uh was listening to to uh, the commentary and the guy was saying that uh, for the most recent dub they, for some reason, decided that they needed to put in more swear words than had been there, and it, they thought he thought it was strange because it was not something that uh, Miyazaki ever really felt was should have been in the film because it was supposed to be a family-friendly sort of film, you know, just a very much a fun uh, caper film. 
Yeah. Gentle, and, a gentleman thief film. Yeah, and you definitely can feel that just through the visual sort of language of the film, that it doesn't necessarily need to be. Even the most sort of gruesome characters are not all that gruesome. You know, the henchman characters. And this was a, something I'd asked my kids about, you know, after we watched it. You know, was there anything that felt naturally threatening to you? And my kids are a little bit older than yours, 9 and 13. Uh, and, and there was nothing necessarily threatening. But, you, you know, my, my daughter had said, you know, I thought that the, this... The, the film was so weird visually anyway that I actually thought these weird kind of masked, pointy-fingered characters were, were real, not actually in masks, that they were somehow kind of fantastical blobs that uh, were supposed to be believable as such until the end when you see the samurai actually cut his cut their masks off and you see, here's, here's a guy with a mustache and there's a guy with a beard and there's a guy wearing glasses, yeah, uh, right. which, was, which was pretty funny, but nothing particularly threatening. No, no, and that, that actually is an interesting... Um point that you bring up though just kind of going back to the earlier conversation is that did feel like something that was very Miyazaki is having these kind of really quirky takes on those sorts of characters they did feel like other world beings when uh, like those ninja people they, Mm -hmm. they the way that they would kind of creep in and they had those really long pointy fingers and just everything about them just seemed so non human it just it really was uh, a little more creepy and uh, i know is something that uh, my kids definitely latched onto was just kind of the 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 creepiness of those guys and it was a lot of fun and it was it was surprising to actually see them revealed as just kind of basic ninjas i mean i guess you get that earlier when you see jodo when he's talking to uh, uh the count uh, about having failed him of of killing those two guys you see him in one of the outfits so you know that he was out there with them but it um yeah it's it's it is an interesting little um, Miyazaki thing that does kind of seem to kind of grow as he latches onto those sorts of quirks um, as he continues in his career. One of the things that I I sort of latch onto, and I have not seen all of Miyazaki's films, and so I feel like I'm missing some in the collection. But one of the things I thought was interesting in this one is that it it almost feels like he's fighting to uh, create more balanced gender roles in this film. And and I say that because many of his other films, those that I have seen, have even more of these strong women characters, characters that don't play this role that they need to be rescued, but they just play a, a dramatic narrative role in the film, and they are the rescuers, or they are the sufferers, or they are they are the protagonists, and and uh, we get to see them coming of age. We get to see that. I mean, I'm talking more about like Totoro and and Kiki's Delivery Service and Nausicaa and Spirited Away, and I mean these are these are films that do much more to celebrate. Um, you know, I, I think that balanced gender roles or or even a, a uh, more feminist, uh, you know, heroic position in these films. And this one was interesting because you do have the a more traditional kind of Disney-esque, we must rescue the princess. Uh, but we also have the um, kind of the Rambo uh, in, like freelance soldier, right, the mercenary. Fujiko. Fujiko is the mercenary. And I think that's a, she is a fantastic contrast to, um, you know, to the, the, the princess needing rescue. I don't know how much of that's uh, in this particular film, at least, uh, we can attribute to Miyazaki because, I mean, the five principal characters, my understanding, I haven't seen anything else that is Lupin the Third, um, but the five principal characters are Lupin the Third, uh, Daisuke, uh, Jigen, uh, Zenigata, the, the, the inspector, um, Fujiko, and Goemon. Those five are the, kind of the core 
of all the Lupin stories. So yes. Fujiko is always there. Yes. And she often helps Lupin the third um, with his uh, capers. And then sometimes she's kind of trying to help herself as a part of those capers. I think his instinct is interesting uh, to me. That's the thing that I'm most interested in about this. Um, you know, this interpretation is, is just seeing um, how we capture both of these kind of um, these, these sides of that feminist or feminine hero. Yeah. Um, it, it's sort of why I like Miyazaki films for, for the kids, because, you know, they they're kind of anti anti Disney and a little bit in that in that regard. The the other thing that um, I think Miyazaki uh, brings to the table um, that does kind of I think tie into what you're saying is just the the transition from the monkey punch style of Lupin the uh, Third to one that is a little more family friendly. And I don't know again I don't know enough about the 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 TV series. I mean, there was, I think four different Lupin series. There's, you know, five other movies there, there's so much Lupin out there. It's crazy. Um, how popular this character is. And, um, but, but, you know, he wrote the script and he, he went back and the whole character of Lupin the third is supposed to be, um, a, the grandson of Arsene Lupin, a famous French thief, written um, by uh, Maurice LeBlanc back in the, uh, gosh, I think it was in the early, when was he writing Arsene Lupin? In the early 1900s, I think he started writing the Arsene Lupin stories. And um, and Miyazaki went back to one of the original Lupin stories that dealt with um, with Princess Clarice. The, it was called the, the Countess of Cagliostro. And uh, from 1924, and so he went back to that story to try finding some elements to uh, to build this script, and then he pulled some other elements from some of the other uh, the other Arsène Lupin stories to kind of help create this one. But I think that says a lot that he sure he was taking some of the Lupin the Third elements from Monkey Punch, but I think the fact that he went back to this kind of gentleman burglar. Uh, that uh, that Maurice LeBlanc had created says what Miyazaki was really trying to do with this story. He didn't want that kind of crass type of story. He did want to make something that was friendlier for the family and that had a character we could identify with more and uh, and wasn't as aggressive toward women. I think there's a lot there just in how he approached finding his story that says a lot about him and where he would go from here. I think that's, uh, I'm glad you brought that up, that the Arsene Lupin connection, I think, is really good. And when you look at the comparison of the characters, you can really see some of the, and of course, we don't, we don't have the Arsene Lupin sort of moving pictures, but what we do have are these, you know, the, the, the art of Arsene Lupin was the monocle wearing top hat doffed, you know, uh, real like gentleman uh, of, of thievery. And I think it's, I think it was really interesting. It makes me want to go back. Did you pick up the, the Sherlock Holmes introduction to Lupin's story? No, I didn't. Um, in, uh, it was in 1906, uh, uh Maurice, uh, introduced Sherlock Holmes to the story, but Conan Doyle, um, said, uh, no, we're not going to be doing that. And so, um, he in- introduced a new character, uh, called Arsene Lupin versus Sherlock Holmes. In 1906, <laughs> and this is in Volume Two, and uh, so it's a French release, but it looks like uh, uh, it looks like one of those um, 
it's one of those that allowed he wrote Lupin's uh, uh, story such that um, he manages to solve riddles that Herlock Sholmes is unable to f- to solve himself, and so it's a little game of one upsmanship that I think uh, one upsmanship that I think is really interesting to to kind of play with, especially going on that far back uh, in uh, the early 1900s. Very interesting. Yeah, who who knew? Back to Miyazaki, I do think another element that we do see in this film that is it, that did feel a little Miyazaki-ish is the elements of nature and some of the ways that he would compose some of the shots within the film. Um, I, I think that it uh, it does just um, say, "Hey, this is Miyazaki at work here." The way that the way that he just kind of sets things up really feels very. Um, very cinematic and that's something i've always really enjoyed about his films is while they're animated um and and i've just always enjoyed watching them uh this this style of animation but they still feel very cinematic and it's simple this is a very simplistic um animation done for this film i mean this film was a whirlwind of production they actually um, for whatever reason, I think it, it uh, got greenlit like in March or something, and then it premiered in December, which is kind of an insane turnaround for an animated film. I mean, if anyone is familiar with like how long Disney takes getting any of their films ready, I mean, it's like four years. It's it's just so much time going into the story and reworking the story constantly as they uh, really kind of begin fleshing everything out and drawing everything. It takes a really long time. This was done in less than a year. It's super crazy. And um, and I don't think that uh, Miyazaki ended up being completely happy with the uh, the result. I think that there was a different ending he originally had planned that he had to change um, in order to meet the deadline. And I don't think he um, uh, liked this new ending as much. I actually like the ending. I think it works really nicely. I love seeing everything up on the clock tower. Um, and through the kind of inner workings of the clock, um, speaking of of nods in other films, yes. it's definitely a big nod um, pulled from from this um, in the 1986 Great Mouse Detective, which I thought was a, a great little thing to see when you see that uh, in this film. I was like, ah, that's where they got it. And um, uh, yeah, so but, you know, I, I still like the ending. I think it's a lot of fun. And, you know, it was really funny how... Um, kids react to things and watching something like this with my kids when uh Cagliostro ends up <laughs> getting caught between the two hands of the clock as they are coming closer and closer and he's trying to hold them off and then you just get that nice wide shot as they just kind of squish together my daughter couldn't even look at the screen it was very it was very <laughs> funny um i think that's a i think that's a great point and the i'm with you on the end i enjoyed the end i thought the end was a, a fun a, a fun reveal after the the destruction of the clock tower and the the way the water sort of um uh, releases this the underground kind of ruins of the the old city uh i thought that was a great uh, little puzzle to have been solved and uh and so i was i was really very satisfied with that i i'm you know i i think it was um it, it was it was earned it was finally earned yeah right it was um you know it's the sort of ending where you know the the treasure of Cagliostro ends up being something that's so much more than treasure, right? It's this yes. ancient city under the lake. And that um, is Miyazaki. Now, if if yeah. it had been, you know, an ancient city named Hope, 
<laughs> or confusion, uh, <laughs> then it might have been really, it was actually a phantom city uh, <laughs> named Hope. <laughs> you had to think real hard about it to win. Uh, that was, uh, I, but I thought it was, I, I think you're right. I think that's a, that's a particularly um, Miyazaki thing. Did you notice, did, did you happen to note who um, the Count, did he look like anybody to you? He resemble anybody to you? Uh, I was thinking no. you in particular might, might share this. Like me? No, no, no. Might share my sense that he looked like somebody familiar. Gosh, you know, I, I don't know. Who who are you thinking? Robert Wagner. Oh, that's you know, actually kind of true. Right? That really is you need to go true. back and watch a little of it, too. It's, you know, one of the interesting things my, my daughter said, she picked it up on this with, uh, particularly with uh, in respect to the count uh that there is an there is a thing about trust in this movie the characters that are trustworthy are the characters that speak out of their whole mouths and interestingly none of the characters speak out of their whole mouths except the princess really yeah even uh lupin uh I, i think actually maybe the samurai does i didn't look that closely at that one I need to go back and look at that one. But um, there, many characters spend a lot of their time in dialogue speaking out of half their mouths. It's That's very, kind of interesting. It is yeah. very interesting, right? And, and the way she put it, you know, you, they're not trustworthy because you never know what they're saying out of the other side of their mouth. Oh. I thought that was fascinating. That is fascinating. I, I didn't notice that at first. Hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you think about that and Robert Wagner. And Robert Wagner. Exactly. I swear this movie is an homage to Robert Wagner. <laughs> That's very funny. You know, it's interesting. Just the the style of anime compared to what we're so used to over here in this country, the Disney style. Um, I guess that's what we can call it. But it's it, you know, Walt Disney, I think, really set the set the standard for animation in the U.S. that uh, that we're all used to because he pretty much started the art form. Um, I, I I grew up on a lot of anime TV shows. Uh, Bell and Sebastian was one of my favorites. I, I really enjoyed some of the early anime um, movies that I would just see, like adaptations of of stories, like um, you know things like Anne of Green Gables and things like that. That I didn't even know what it was at the time that I was watching. I would just watch it because it was a cartoon, and I really enjoyed just kind of all of those. Um, Oliver Twist. There was a great Oliver Twist one that I would watch. And just these things that I would watch that were that were anime that I really enjoyed. And I just had no sense as to what that was. But I've always really kind of been drawn to the style. I think it's really interesting. Um, I think there are limits. I, I do think there are points where the eyes are just a little too big and I just, I'm not quite as, uh, as drawn into them. But I, I, I love what they're doing with the stories. I love that it's it's kind of there's a little more to them. They don't feel like they have to be just kind of the the princess fairy tale sorts of stories. And Disney has certainly gotten away from that, and I certainly appreciate that. Um, and, you know, I'm a huge Disney fan. I really enjoy uh, the Disney films. But I do think it's very interesting, this different take on animation and what um, animators were doing at the time. And uh, in particular, what Miyazaki ends up doing and how he kind of continues uh, with his style, especially, and we'll probably talk about this more when we get to uh, The Wind Rises, um, his last film, 
because that film came out at a particular time after really the point when hand-drawn animated films have stopped uh, largely here in the U.S. And I think there's something about this hand-drawn style that he um, really connects with and finds a way to just get a lot of detail in there that feel that just makes them feel like real worlds. Yeah, it's so interesting because even in this film, as much as it feels like a, uh, you know, you can you can almost get there. You know, you almost get there. I'm with you, though. It seems like the technique, right, the style of of animation is more effective when it is less, uh, when it attempts to be less of our real world. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I feel like I it's so. it's so much more immersive when I feel like I'm in his dream. Right. When I'm when I'm like parading through some world that he's created for me. That's why in in this film, it feels less ambitious because I feel less uh, because I can. There's too much of it that I feel like is is a part of my world. Right. You know, there's it's like too little metaphor, too much kind of practicality and and gadgetry and 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 too little um, sort of painterly approach to the scape. and and I think you know even in the you look at the more violent sort of anime the anime that I feel like I grew up on was like Akira you know I mean it was like just a much much more violent and and um, but it really represents kind of the kinds of things that I was watching and interested in and um, uh, and it, it was so fantastical that I like I would dream in this style because I felt like I was in it, you know, and and uh, so I would get so excited. You know, one of my very favorite, um, you know, sort of modern takes on some of this stuff was the remember when the Matrix came out and they did the Beyond the Matrix um, stuff. It was all. Oh, the uh, Animatrix. The, the Animatrix, Animatrix. The Animatrix. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, I, I think we there was some. Uh, the final flight of the Osiris was great. Uh, Beyond was great. I mean, these are all sort of variations on a very similar kind of Miyazaki defined style that I think really are um, really defined what I was interested in um, as a, as a kid. And so this one is, it's like, it's a bridge to what I'm familiar with and the films we're talking about in coming weeks are, are my destination. Well, I, I, I agree. I mean, all of those films, you know, uh, ghost in a shell. Oh, Lensman. I mean, there was a lot of great anime films that uh, that did come out as we as we kind of got older, and yeah. and, and um, those styles. I mean, you know, the sci-fi elements that they had in them. I think what was so different about them is they um, felt like they tackled different genres, and I think at the time, so much of the Disney animation felt so grounded in in kind of historical or past things, you know? I mean, I don't think they ever did anything futuristic until Treasure Planet, maybe? Yeah. Was that their first film where they actually did something that was more of a sci-fi? Wow. I think I think it was, which was, was that 2000, 2001 or two, something like that? Jeez, that's, so that's sad. That's, well, I don't know if it's sad. It's just they had a very different take on the direction they were going, and uh, they didn't branch out. Um, and they really still haven't, largely. I mean, I don't. I, I mean, they've yeah. never done any big sci-fi, really kind of interesting things using the art form um, in an Akira sort of style, where it really um, takes it in a different direction. They've never done that. 
No, no, that's that is true. Uh, I don't know. Maybe that's something that uh, that they're counting on Pixar to come up with. Well, you know, maybe that's part of maybe, it. Maybe, maybe. I mean, Pixar has certainly gone a little more of that route. Wally, I mean, was all. Uh, that kind of was exactly sci-fi. my thought. Yeah. 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 Um, but they've never gone adult. They've never really made an animated film that is more of a, a film for an adult. And that's, I think, where a lot of these other anime films have gone. I mean, Ghost in the Shell, Akira, these are not films I would sit down and show with my kids. No, you know? no, 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 no. <laughs> They're no. just not quite. They're not quite that. Uh, and, you know, it's certainly not something like um, uh, Grave of the Fireflies. I mean, there's yeah. there there's a line that um, the Japanese crossed in their anime films that we've never crossed in any of the kind of the Disney sorts of films. Disney, it's always been family-friendly, uh, geared for the children, and, I you know, it, that's what it is. I don't think there's a problem with that. I just don't think that they've expanded into other genres like so many of these different anime styles have. And I think that's maybe why you and I are drawn to a lot of these anime films because they, they, they tackle bigger issues. They look at Blade Runner esque sci-fi elements that are really fun to think about and, and, and uh, you know, just talk about and dwell on and, and uh, watch and uh, while Lupin the Third is not that sort of film, it still is a very fun film. I mean, you're, I, I you know, again, I, I guess Tangled, you have kind of a bank robber of sorts who is kind of one of your main characters. But, you know, a Lupin the Third robber, a gentleman thief, is not somebody that you're probably going to have in a Disney film. Unless you go back to Robin Hood, I suppose. Even that was not, uh... no. <laughs> not quite there. Uh, that's that's interesting, and that Disney connection I think is really interesting, and, and particularly back to your comment that that as Walt Disney was really defining a style of animation that really took hold here, uh, Miyazaki was defining a style of man- animation, or really sort of leveraging a style of animation and 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 uh, defining uh, in a similar. Uh, capacity in Japan, and I think it's um, I, I think uh, it's a real shame that it took so long to get here. I mean, when was when was uh, Cagliostro first released here? Like ninety six, ninety seven, ninety one, actually. Oh, ninety one. Yeah. Uh, still, uh, you know, that's that's a long time. Yeah, yeah, it's a very long time. It's a very long time. And they were they uh, were hard to get. I mean, I remember trying to to find them as a kid. I mean, when did uh, the Ghost in the Shell was like ninety five or something like that? I remember it was it was hard to find. Um, it was hard to find the comics. We had to go to a, you know, it, they were not in my, my local, uh, dealer down the street. No, I think Lensman might've been the first one that I saw that came out. Uh, that was in 1984. Um, I think, uh, but I, I that was, uh, no, 1990 USA. That's when it came out it, mm-hmm. again, another big gap. Yeah. Big gap. Well, it's it's about time that it's here, and I am very excited about the the uh, other two films. We're really doing just sort of a sampling uh, because I, I also think it would be fun, particularly now that I watched this and started reading up on on more of Miyazaki's work. I it makes me want to watch more of them and do more of them in a row. Yeah, I know. I think they're a lot of fun, and I definitely enjoy um, what they're doing. And I mean, this is a very fun film. And considering what we're going to be talking about um, this weekend for our film board, Spectre. 
Um, this does have kind of a fun little James Bond sort of element. You've got this kind of guy who's got gadgets and rescues the girl, and there's lots of action scenes. I mean, I don't think it's on par with anything James Bond, but it still is. It still is kind of uh, of that vibe a little bit. It's pretty fun. I yeah, I agree. I had a good time. I had a fine yeah. a fine time. What did you think of the uh, the voices for for the American version? Well, you know, they were. Uh... I don't know, suitably annoying. I, I get my, I'm really, I, I don't know, because I don't know how great animated voices, like, I, I don't know how to gauge them as actors uh, when I'm listening to them in their original language. <laughs> I'm listening to them and reading, in, you know what I'm saying? Like uh-huh. watching a Japanese voice, they, were, they all sound great to me. Like the so well, when I listened to it in in the the dubbed voices and and uh, you know again I I think the voices we were like there was nobody in the voices uh, that I recognized as somebody that I I needed to have been following all these years. The interesting thing about the Japanese voices um, for a large chunk of them Yasuo Yamada, Yamada did right. Mar- Lupin the uh, Third, um, Taro Ishida did uh, well no who are the other ones uh, I'm trying to find the main ones Kiyoshi Kobayashi did uh, Jigen. Uh, Goro Naya did uh, Zenigata, Aiko Masuyama, Aiko Masuyama uh, did Fujiko, and uh, Makio Inoue did Goman. Those ca- those actors, um, I-, I can't speak for all of them, but a good chunk of them have continued with these characters for long periods of time. It's crazy how uh, these characters just really um, sustained so much of their career. If you look at, just take Yasuo Yamada, who did the voice of, of Lupin Third. Um, once he did that back in the late 70s, I mean, he was basically just, um, I mean, he had done it actually before that. He did the Loop on the Third TV show. Um, and then he just went on. And it, basically the last part of his career is nothing but playing Loop on the Third. It's uh, it's interesting how latched onto these characters they became. So Kiyoshi, um, Kiyoshi Kobayashi played Jigen, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. And so, can could you guess listening to his voice, the uh, the kinds of characters that he would dub into Japanese non animated? And don't go look, don't cheat. I couldn't. Well, but I mean, I listened to the English. Oh, dub, so, so you I, che- yeah. I didn't get to hear his voice. That's right, you didn't get to hear his voice. Uh, so this guy, like the uh, like you were just saying, I mean, this is he's played the role in everything. Uh, all the television animation, the animated films, all the Lupin uh, properties. He was Jigen. But then his dubbing roles, pretty much name a James Coburn part. Name a Lee Marvin part. Name a Tommy Lee Jones part. Uh, Franco Nero, Sam Elliott, Jack Palance, George Kennedy, Clint Eastwood. Uh, this guy, uh, he even did uh, Colonel Nathan Jessup in A Few Good Men, Jack Nicholson. Uh, he's done all of them. He is the the big bad hero dub in Japan. That's awesome. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. That is yeah. pretty crazy. I, uh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's very cool. So the amazing characters. I wish we. I wish I would have watched that original version, and uh, because I think that'd be that would be worth watch. I may have to go back and do that. Um, but I don't think I've. I don't think I've ever seen it. I think the only version I've seen is the dubbed one. Yeah, of this film. Well, um, the interesting thing about Loop on the Third is Bob Bob Bergen did uh, the original 1992 dub for it. Mm-hmm. Bob Bergen is a very prolific voiceover artist and who is most well known right now as the current uh, Porky Pig in anything uh, that Warner Brothers puts out. 
Space Jam. Yeah, he's he's all over the place. Been all over. And then David Hayter, who is uh, Lupin the Third in the 2000 uh, dub, he is one of the writers of X Men, X Two, and Watchmen. That's right. That's so, right. Look at that. Yeah. So. Uh, and the voice actor for Solid Snake in the Metal Gear series. That's right. That's, that's a big right. one. Did we did we ever play that when we lived together? Is that one of our games? I don't think so. It sounds familiar, mm. but I just Metal can't, Gear. I can't speak to it. That was big, very big. Uh, anyway, so I, you know, I in terms of your original question, what do we think of the? Uh, you know, I I thought it was fine. It it was fine. It felt like a dubbed cartoon. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, when it comes to animated films, I really kind of agree with uh, Roger Ebert, who's just because he was always like when people would get up in arms about um, redubbed versions of animated films, he's like. An animated film is always dubbed. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's always dubbed. It doesn't matter what language you're looking at when you see it. So, I mean, I always prefer to watch the original with subtitles, but I really have, especially now that I have kids, I've grown to really not have a problem. But you know, I think it's a dubbed version. I think it's even more of a problem now than it than it was, and it's more of a problem now because we are more accustomed watching more sophisticated animation in which the lips match the the language. Well, right. I, I, that's definitely true. Yeah, this this film, I mean, these older films, you know, I, I kind of look at it like yeah. watching The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. The it's lips not, don't really match. The but lips don't match. Yeah, the lips don't match. It's fine. I, I that's that's what it feels. It's 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 fine. It's a big fat fine. But but I think you know, sitting down watching it with my kids who are really accustomed to recent animation, current animation, contemporary animation, where the lips are so painstakingly matched to the voice. Uh, into the language that that it really does feel dubbed. It feels like a dubbed actor or actress, just as it would in a live action film. I think that's an important difference. Yeah, I can see that. All right, I can see that. I'll call this one a draw. A draw. A draw. It is. Uh, uh, what do you have? Do you have anything else on your big fat list? My big fat list. Uh, the only other person that I was going to talk about was. Um, was uh, Sumi Shimamoto, who played Lady Clarice Cagliostro. Um, and really, it's just because uh, we're going to be talking about her more soon. She was in uh, she was in My Neighbor Totoro. She played Yasuko. And she played uh, Nausicaa in Nausicaa and of the mm-hmm. Valley of the Wind. And I believe she was also in, uh, what was the other one that she was in? Uh, Princess Mononoke as Toki. So she's she's one of the few people that I could find who had been in uh, more than one Miyazaki film. I, there was another person I, I want to, gosh, I can't remember who it was, if it was uh, Zenigata or somebody, but somebody else had been in a number of his other mm-hmm. films. Well, that is actually, that's where we're going next, right? I mean, we're talking about uh, about mm-hmm. uh, Totoro yeah. next. I'm very much looking forward to that. And I think I'm looking forward to that more watching that with my kids. Yeah, I mean, uh, my kids love um, both of these films, but uh, yeah, Totoro's my yeah. favorite of his films, so... The last thing was, uh, you know, we were going to bring up this Lupin the Third uh, oh, film, yeah. this live action film that came out uh, in 2014 that actually looks like it's quite a bit of fun. I don't know uh, what the, the the reviews were, but uh, it looked kind of like a fun film. Uh, Ryuhei uh, Kitamura directed it. And uh, yeah, we should post this uh, the trailer for it in, in our show notes. We'll definitely do that. It's it's worth checking out because I think they do a really good job. It actually it feels very much uh, true to the character, and and he's wearing leather pants, fancy. <laughs> and, he, 
and he has the uh, the nice colored coat. Too, he does. Which I enjoyed. Yeah, it looked great. It, you know, I I don't know. It felt a little bit like Speed Racer to me, like the. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, uh, but it looked fun. So that's worth checking out. Oh, here you go. Upon release, the film reached second place at the Japanese box office. Uh, did you get any uh, numbers on this one in particular? They were tricky to find, but I did find some. Um, I found that, and it was all in yen, so I did my best to uh, do a conversion of 1979 yen to dollars. <laughs> <laughs> the things I end up searching for on the internet, Pete, I tell you. Uh, this film, in dollars, it cost about 500 million yen uh, to make this film back in 1979, which is about... Uh, two million dollars, about six point seven million adjusted dollars, in uh, today's uh, dollars, and uh, it ended up making about six hundred million yen, which is um, about six point uh, no, no, wrong number. It ended up making about uh, eight million dollars adjusted. So it made a little bit of money back, um, not a ton, but it did, and that was for an adjusted profit per finished minute of thirteen thousand uh, dollars per finished minute. About um, this is a film that it didn't get a huge uh, reaction in uh, Japan when it first came out. A lot of it was because some people were rather upset that Lupin the Third was not like uh, the Monkey Bone or Monkey Bone. The monkey punch. <laughs> That's a totally different monkey. <laughs> the monkey punch version that they had all grown to love. It's It was a little more tame, and some people were upset by that. Um, but that being said, it has found a much bigger audience as time has grown on. Yeah, we don't know anything about people being upset with adaptations. No, no. Not a thing. Never heard about that. I say we rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com, uh, everybody, and you should sign up, set up your account. And like more and more people are writing us and doing, join the club. And uh, you should uh, look at all the movies we've done and rank them. Uh, start with Children of the Corn. I think we established that as canon <laughs> last week. You start there and then rank everything against Children of the Corn and see how your list shakes out against ours. We can't wait to compare. And if you, uh, as you're doing this, if you come up with any great shockers, uh, we want to hear. Write us, uh, let us know on Facebook or uh, send us a Do you send messages? You're the real expert on Flickchart. Can you message people on Flickchart? Is, do we get messages there? There are comments that people can make on your page and you can kind of... You know, you can read those. I, I don't get notifications or anything if somebody okay. does that. But every time I log in, I check our page to see. So right. if you do leave us a, a note there, we'll see it. Uh, Twitter and Facebook, we get notifications. And so both yeah. of us get buzzed. So we like that. Let us know. What are the big shocks and why are you so surprised? We want to hear. That's it. Let's do it. All right. Here we go. Loop on the third, the Castle of Cagliostro or Kind Hearts and Coronets. <laughs> what would I put on first? Well, I would probably put on the Castle of Cagliostro first, but, but I I'm think gonna I'm going to go with hearts and yeah, kind hearts and coordinates. Ah, the Castle of Cagliostro or the host. I would put, I would pick Castle of Cagliostro here. Would you? Yeah, I just, you know, I have all these issues with the host. Well, it, I know. It just ends up bugging me every time I watch that film. I'm on the fence on this one, so I will give it to you. All right. Also, I kind of want to seed an animated film a little bit higher in our list. Is that subversive of me? <laughs> it's fine. Lupin the Third or La Vion Rose. Hmm. I certainly didn't say. I mean, I know we weren't crazy about La Vion Rose as a film, but I certainly saw no performances in there like the performance of uh, of uh, the great Edith Piaf. 
No, no, I agree with you there. I mean, I would watch Castle of Cagliostro first, but if we're looking at the performance there, I don't know. I'm a little uh, torn. You're done. I, I think I would probably lean toward Le'Veon Rose. All right, well, I'll give that one to you. Right. Uh, loop on the third or Gallipoli? Oh, I think Gallipoli. I would do loop on the third here. Really? Yeah, I think I would. Huh. All I'm right. Not gonna, I'm not going to go to the mats on it or anything. All right, no. If you're, I, if you're no, firm on Gallipoli, uh, sir, I I yield to the gentleman from Arizona. <laughs> okay, there you go. Loop on the third or Moon. Moon. Yeah, moon, I have moon, some moon. I have some pacing issues with Moon, but it's pretty dang creative. Um, how about Loop on the third or It Happened One Night? Um, definitely It Happened One Night. Yeah, yeah, It Happened One Night. I might not right. be as, you know, vociferous about it as you. All right. The Castle of Cagliostro or The Thin Man. The Thin Man. Really? <laughs> yes. Really. Because <laughs> I would be Castle of Cagliostro here. A lot? Like go to the mats on it a lot? No, I wouldn't go to the mats on it. All right. I think if I'm If you're there. Thin Man, I'm, I'll give you Thin Man. I'm Thin Man. Firmly, right. we're, we're this is we're being very, we're we're this is like our gentleman thief episode. This it really is. It really is. <laughs> uh, loop on the third, the castle of Cagliostro, or the Poseidon Adventure. <laughs> Upside down action. Uh, um, you know they uh, they scratch the same itch for me. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I'm, I'll probably go loop on the third. Yeah, I will too. I'm, I'm pretty uh, almost evenly split on this one. 143 out of 209. All right. Yeah, not too bad. That's not too, not bad. too bad. For the for the start of the, uh, the Hayao Miyazaki series, I think that uh, it landed in a fair spot. It's fine. It's just it's fine. It's fine. Uh, I think we are all much more excited uh, to move into. This is, it's become Studio uh, Ghibli uh, stuff, and, and I feel like where we where we go next, we get to see a much more uh, sort of florid, uh, enthusiastic voice uh, coming from Miyazaki, and that's, that's what gets me so excited about next week. Absolutely. We're going to be jumping into 1988's My Neighbor Totoro. Very much looking forward to that one. Very, very much. Uh, Before that, though, be on the lookout, because we do have our film board, as Andy has already said, uh, alluded to. We have our film board this weekend. We're doing Spectre, and you're on your way to see it, so we got to shut up. Yes, but we forgot your star rating. What's your letterboxed star rating for this one? Oh, geez. I don't know. What's yours? You're in the fours. No, I'm, I'm, I think I'm three, three and a half right in there. I'm going to yeah. say, I'm going to laugh, uh, laugh. I'm going to, I'm going to latch in at, uh, three and a half, I think. All right. Uh, I also will be three and a half. How's that? All right. That sounds good. All right. Good. That's it. So yes, after the star rating, then we're doing Spectre and then I got to go to bed. All right. I got this, uh, printing press down in my basement. I hear some uh, noise down there. I gotta run down there and check on it make sure everything's okay.
I've got one. I, I've got a one star from 2000. Mm. Here we go. Our family has been delighted to view My Neighbor Totoro many times over the years. I purchased this video for my eight-year-old son's Christmas stocking and was horrified to hear that the first word spoken was son of a bee. Women are referred to as broads. And these are some of the less offensive utterings during this film. I found it neither entertaining nor suitable for a child, 9, 10, or 12, for that matter. I am not a prude. But this film, interestingly, and then stops. She just stops. But this, but this <laughs> film, and then stops. She just couldn't take it anymore. Just, Maybe she's stops writing. combusted. No punctuation, no nothing. <laughs> and, and as you can imagine, uh, the comments... Uh, are better. The comments on the comment are better. Take some responsibility for your mistake to purchase an anime without reading the product PG-13 rating. Uh, the story is what it is. You need to grow up. I, you know, we don't need to call names. No. But, but really, you could, you could read the packaging. It does say PG-13 right on it. Right, exactly. That's all I'm saying. Well, I've got a one star by Snoopy six three one two three, who says, "Boring, boring, boring." I bought this DVD because I liked Princess Mononoke so much. However, I found this one to be absolutely boring. There just wasn't enough action in this feature, which is funny because it's all action. It felt like I always waiting. It felt like I was always waiting for something to happen, but it never did. Yeah, well, you gotta hit the play button, not just watch the menu. <laughs> Oh, snap, Amazon. Sophia, um, so what's the movie we just watched? Do you remember the name? The Castle of Cagliostro. You want to try that again? <laughs> the Castle of Cagliostro. I can't say. Milton was a bad guy, but he's... Actually, not. He saves people, but to him, the bad guy, the really bad guy, he thinks he's a thief. Lupin, but he's good. What I thought of Lupin the Third, Castle of Cagliostro, that it was a, it was a very adventurous movie. Um, it was good, I guess. He was trying to rob the castle of some sort. There was lots of running and movement and lots of talking and planning. Well, he didn't do much stealing. I liked that he was a thief and a helpful person. He was awesome. I think Lupin is a good guy and a bad guy because he saves people, and he also steals money. I liked it when he saved the girl from going off the cliff. He was physically ridiculous just because of the way he moved and climbed up the sides of buildings and upside down on the buildings and hanging by a finger. I liked that he had like this belt thingy, and he went up and down. That was cool. Kind of ridiculously impossible like climbing up the side of that building <laughs> and like upside down and all over the building and sliding down the roof awesome i wanted to do that only if i had a rope and then a bullet and then it go down 
and then I added one, and then I jumped. Then I jumped, and then I got on it. You think that you could really do that? No, but I wanted to do it. I liked when the thing that comes out of his belt, the little grappling hook, because he's like, it, it shoots out of the waterfall thing, and he says something. What does he say again, Daddy? You're really good at making a guest feel welcome. That's really funny. I like the color yellow. It can, like, drive up hills, like that mountain. It can drive up mountains. And, like, I'm guessing that the license plate would come off and they would trip on it. They steal the money and all the cars, um... Went into something and the wheel fell off, and their car fell in pieces too. And the tree fell in one. Like, just like the way he talked. Yeah. You can't trust them because you don't know what they're saying on the other side of their mouth. Cagliostro looks a little old fashioned. I guess it makes sense because it's like, I haven't seen all the Indiana Jones movies. But they are very, like, similar, it seems like. I didn't really like the goons. I didn't like those guys that were hunched over, and they're like... (laughs) (laughs) Those creepy little bad guys? Yeah, they're like... Dressed in black with the long fingers? Yeah, they're like... <laughs> I thought those were real. I thought that their their claws were real at first, because it felt like everything else in this movie was crazy. So why couldn't there be creepy alligator walking porcupine people? The part where they're swimming underwater—that's scary. I don't like that. Like underwater in a tunnel kind of feeling very confined. Drowning. That no, thought think... of drowning or anything else like that—it's not good. I don't think they're alone. Okay. Those are funny. They were funny. Were they scary? No, they're fun. What was your favorite part of the movie? Every single one. My favorite part of the movie was when Lupin dressed up as the guy that reads the book and says all this stuff for the marriage. That was what, that was my favorite part. I think my favorite part was when he came through the castle roof to save the girl, and when, in the beginning, when she gave him the ring. What happens in that part is that Lupin makes this thing that he's like rising from the dead but he's actually the guy that reads the book for the marriage. He's like talking the machine that Lupin made from the Rise of the Dead. And then then all the swords go through him because they want to kill him. But then Lupin, who's the book guy for the marriage, he takes the rings off of the little pillow thing and then he runs with the girl. And that's all on TV. 
when it first started, and the police started, the guys started to get them. When they got to have all the money, funny. That bad guy, the count. I didn't really think he was that scary. I guess he was kind of mean and horrible. He was mean and horrible, but I, I kind of understand his ideas because it felt like he wanted to. He just wanted to know the secret, and he like it felt like he could have been like left out of something. You're talking about the goat secret at the end with the yeah, things? Yeah, yeah. But he was driven by that. Yeah, that's all he... It felt like that was all he wanted, really. Like, he was going to kill Clarice afterwards. It wasn't that he wanted to marry her. It was that he just wanted her ring. I like the ones that are hand-drawn because you can make a lot of mistakes, but sometimes the mistakes make it better. I could sort of see some marks, Sort of which looked really cool because it sort of blended in with it and it made it look cooler. Like you can express your mind and make things look how you want it to look, not how the computer wants it to look, how you want it to look. Now, did you understand what what uh, Count Cagliostro was doing with all that fake money? He was giving it away to people, but they gave it away. Why was he giving it away to people? They were letting people get it so people could have it, but then they all throw it away. Do you know what counterfeit money is? It's fake. It's fake, that's right. Can you use fake money when you go to the store? No, you can't buy anything. No, it's all fake, huh? Yeah. Yeah. They beep it, and then it says, and then, you, then they say, oh. Oh. It's not real money. Then, you, then you're out of luck, huh? Mm-hmm, and then you don't have any money. There's a lot of different voices for every character. But for some reason, I feel like in movies that are not Disney, I feel like there's more voice into the movie. Like reading a book, you can like hear the voice, but it's not actually... There's no actual voice, but you can feel, hear the voice. Like the anger and the sadness and the fear. Like I can hear that and feel it more in the non-Disney movies. Because in the Disney movies, there's not really problems. Is Mickey Mouse Disney? Like there's not really problems, they just solve them. They're not like things getting in the way. Well, there is things getting in the way of Mickey Mouse, but it's not like like they're asking us, which feels weird because TV's asking us. It just feels really weird. What did you think of the dog? Did you like the dog, the princess's dog? Yes! <laughs> Do you want a dog? Yeah. Well, sometimes they say it too fast and the words disappear before I can read it all. So I like the English because you can understand it. I would recommend the, ca- the Castle of Cagliostro 
um, to other kids because I think if people like ninja Japanese warrior movies, they'll definitely like this. They'll definitely think it's funny. When the clock tower, when he put, when um, the bad guy put the rings in the eyes, then it went in and then the clock was like going towards the middle. And he's like, no, I don't want to get squished. And that was super funny and weird. And that's why I covered my face. Cause I, it was just super weird. Yeah. But I heard like a, it's like, I'm like, Bleh. yeah, it's really icky. I would definitely want to see other Hayao Miyazaki movies. This was an awesome movie. I would recommend the Castle of Clag, Ugh. I recommend the Castle of Clag, how do you say it, Dad? Clag, Clagliostro. I got it right. Clagliostro. You did not get it right. No. What? That's pretty clever. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15-plus years, Transistor has been, hands down, the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world... Go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>